внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. Another massive journalistic leak from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists documenting the offshore dealings of officials around the world. Another expose of how autocrats like Vladimir Putin, Western leaders like Czech Prime Minister Andrzej Babish, and former Western leaders like the UK's Tony Blair hide their wealth and evade taxes. The recently published Pandora Papers reveal the offshore activity of more than twice as many politicians and public officials as did the ICIJ's 2016 Panama Papers, which sent shockwaves around the world. Have we learned anything in the intervening five years between the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers? Or will the West continue to enable the world's autocrats and kleptocrats and its geopolitical adversaries with a financial system riddled with offshore tax havens and weak beneficial ownership rules? It's not just a moral dilemma. It's a, it's a security threat largely of our own making, and today we'll discuss how to fix it. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. is Josh Rudolph, the fellow from Aligned Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also the author of the recently published report, Regulating the Enablers. Welcome back to The Vertical, Josh. Great to be back in The Vertical, Brian, especially alongside two fellow anti-kleptocracy crusaders. Three, I think. <laughs> but, um, hey, right. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't count Brian out, baby. We're also, all in it together. <laughs> also joining us from the historic Capitol Hill is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. Welcome back to the Vertical Paul. Good to be back. Good to be Good back. Good to have you. Good to have you. And also joining us from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Mitchell, author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy. Welcome back to The Vertical, Casey. Glad to be here, Brian. Glad to be with everyone today. Glad to see you all. Um, this, this, this is going to be a fun show. So the former co-host of this podcast, uh, Mark Galliotti, had a, a very provocative piece in the Moscow Times this week, where he wrote that the revelations in the Pandora Papers are, quote, at once dramatic, predictable, and alas, arguably pointless. Mark's point is that we've all seen this before. We know what the problem is. We've been admiring the problem for years, um, but yet the feeling is that nothing really changes, nothing really happens. Paul, I want to start with you since you are among those who have been working on solutions, as the emails I keep getting from the Helsinki <laughs> Commission will certainly <laughs> attest. Um, have have the, the, the value, what is the value of bombshell exposés like this? Have these things reached a point of diminishing return? Is this getting to a point of the boy who cried wolf where we're, get, we're seeing one of these every few years? It exposes the same 
same kind of offshore tax evasion, and nothing seems to change. So ha have these reached a point of diminishing return, and when what legislation do you and your colleagues at the Health Commission have cooking to address the issues of offshore beneficial ownership? Yeah, I think the answer to that question for me is, is no, not at all. Please keep them coming. We need more. I mean, we, we really, we, 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 we have to know. We need evidence. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I sometimes feel like, yeah, you know, these things come and we think, oh, well, you know, we knew this was happening, but we didn't know. We, there's no there's no hard evidence, right? I mean, when, mm -hmm. when, when scholars and government officials and, and whatever else uh, are trying to address this issue, it's really tough when you can't point to, okay, this actually happened, right? So, mm -hmm. so when, you, when you see this stuff, you're actually seeing what's going on. So I, I, I do think that the investigative journalists have been just the vanguard of, of responding to the threat of global kleptocracy in a way that scholars and, and, and uh, government officials haven't been. I, and I've said before, as a very proud uh, uh, official of the United States government, uh, we, are, we have been extremely slow to respond to the threat, extremely slow. And that's in part because we, you know, we've been able to brush the problem under the rug, look at the fires ongoing. But when you have something like this, the Pandora Papers, that lights the fire. Right, mm -hmm. and when you have the panel, it lights the fire, and and really, government can only respond to fires. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, it right. Only, it can only respond to things when they are when they are on fire. So I think that we saw that this week when the fire, the Pandora Papers came up, and and only what three days after afterward, uh, rep, you know, three Democrats, three Republicans, so Representatives Melanowski, um, uh, Salazar, Cohen, Wilson, uh, Spanberger, and Hudson introduced the Enablers Act. Uh, in the Enablers Act, the, 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 with, the, with the beautiful, beautiful acronym, uh, uh, Establishing New Authorities for Business Laundering and Enabling Risks to Security Act. <laughs> it's a fantastic, um, fantastic the, the, the Enablers Act, um, you know, will provide the Treasury Department with the authority to finally create basic due diligence obligations for non-bank enablers of kleptocracy. That is all the professionals that get involved with this, lawyers, investment advisors, real estate professionals, which by the way, were regulated under the Patriot Act and received a 20 year exemption. So this bill just repeals that exemption, right? Finally, okay. um, and, and, and so on and so forth. So this is really, really important. And we saw this in the Pandora Papers once again. And in fact, I actually think the big revelation of the Pandora Papers was precisely that it pointed the finger at South Dakota, that pointed the finger at Baker McKenzie, that pointed the finger, you know, finger at big U.S. enablers who have been standing behind uh, kleptocracy. I actually thought in your intro, Brian, that it's a security threat of our own making. It is. But it's also because it's of our own making, we can also clean it up. Yeah. So it, 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 it takes – all it takes is some smart legislation and you can get it done. Yeah, no, and in fairness to Mark Eliotti's uh, very provocative piece in the Moscow Times about this, Mark, Mark was arguing that really this isn't going to change anything in Russia. I mean, we, 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 he was writing basically about the Russian angle on this, and I would agree with that, but there are things we can do that can yeah. address the security threat emanating from Russia as a result of this. I mean, we are we are we are the enablers here. And then I want to I want to bring Josh in on this because I mean, Josh, as you know, I've been arguing for years that this issue is one of national security, and you uh, worked on the National Security Council in the Obama White House. Uh, where you focused on these financial threats. How do you see it, Josh? Are we moving in the right direction in terms of reforming this porous system that enables autocrats, kleptocrats, and our, our, our geopolitical opponents who do not wish us well? 
yes, yes, we are moving in the right direction. I mean, it's easy to to miss that when it when it seems like you know leak after leak, predictable, pointless, nothing changes. Things are changing. The the Pandora Papers, you know, include about the same quantity of files as the Panama Papers did in 2016. Mm-hmm. Whether you whether you measure by the the 12 million documents or the two and a half to three terabytes of data. But as you mentioned at the top, Brian, the new leak names about three times as many corrupt political leaders. Again, whether you measure by the 35 world leaders or the or the 300 plus officials. A big reason for that is that offshore financial companies are keeping more records on uh, a greater portion of the ultimate owners than at least Mossack Fonseca did in Panama. They only knew one in four of the ultimate beneficial owners. And so that change is because um, you know the biggest policy response to the Panama Papers was an acceleration around the world of rules to track what's called the ultimate beneficial ownership. That's not done. You know, there's still implementation issues in in Europe, and you know, we in the United States are still just getting our own registry through the regulatory implementation process. Um, but but we too have 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 benefited uh, from past offshore offshore leaks. I mean it. The Panama Papers were one of the reasons why that even got started. You mentioned I was on the team um, in the Obama White House that pushed out the preliminary response to the Panama Papers in 2016. Um, And even though we ran out of time with the administration ended, that first move within the first month included sending Congress legislation to establish um, the, the ownership registry and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. But then that legislation got over the finish line last year with a helpful nudge from another league called the Vincent Files. So, yes. These leaks are helping us to reform our poorest financial financial system, even though they also show that there's a lot more work to do. And so this time around, the natural policy response doesn't involve companies. It involves humans, the, these, these professional enablers of corrupt and dirty money. And so Congress has now come out first this time, taking the lead with the Enablers Act, as Paul just described. And so now it's time for the administration to to follow suit. Maybe we can discuss that more in the second half. Yeah, no, I, I want to do a deep dive into that in the second half because it was just pretty much what I reserved it for. Um, okay, I want to bring Casey in here as well because Casey's, uh, we should all know his new book is out. Um, and uh, we're going to do a whole podcast just on Casey's book at some point, but we're just going to tease it a little bit today. Uh, Casey, your new book is titled American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in the World. Um, this suggests to me that, that we have seen the enemy, and, and the enemy is us. Our system is really Putin's best friend here. Um, explain your thesis for our listeners. Yeah, Brian, you're you're exactly right, and that's a great way to to describe it. I know this is obviously a Russia-centric, Russia-watching podcast, but when you describe the broader American offshoring and, as I describe them, pro-kleptocracy services industries, this isn't only the Putins of the world taking advantage. This isn't only the Russian right. oligarchic, kleptocratic cast of characters, some of whom have been sanctioned, some of whom certainly should be sanctioned, as our, I think, mutual friend Alexei Navalny and his, his team have put forth a whole range of fantastic names uh, and individuals that deserve to be on those, those sanctions list. But that is only one regime. That is only one country, one governing uh, structure, one effective mafia state or state regime overseen by these kind of organized criminal elements uh, that we've seen out of the Kremlin in uh, uh, 
frankly, in the last two decades now. Uh, what we have done over the last uh, two, three, uh, four decades, especially since the end of the Cold War, is left the door wide, wide open for any and all illicit wealth, any and all dirty money around the world to come racing into the U.S., to come here uh, looking to be laundered, looking to be stashed, looking to be used and hidden for whatever purposes these figures and these forces want. I, I want to get back to, I, I know we'll talk a little bit some of the details that we have uh, in, in the second half, some of the responses, but I want to get back to the earlier comment that we saw from uh, from Mark uh, regarding uh, the, the the release of the, of the Pandora Papers. Were, were they dramatic? Absolutely. Were they predictable in so many ways? Some of the details, some of these networks, again, very much at a 10,000-foot level, the same that we saw with things like the, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. But I would disagree with the notion that any of this is pointless. Maybe if you look at it through a very narrow lens from a, a specific vantage point, in Moscow, yes, there were revelations about Putin's friends. Yes, there were revelations about Putin's mistress. I don't think that there is going to be anything that topples the regime in, in Russia, or for that matter, what we saw in Kazakhstan, or for, for that matter, what we saw in Azerbaijan. But in no way, shape, or form has it been pointless in the last week. Look at uh, a fallout in, in the Czech Republic. Look at fallout in Chile. Look at fallout in Pakistan. Look at fallout in Jordan mm. or Ecuador. All around the world, suddenly, populations are made that much more aware how their ruling elites are pilfering and pillaging these populations. And then we have that much better of an idea how they are coming directly to the United States of America, to states like South Dakota, using real estate industries, using American enablers like lawyers and, and, and these quote unquote global law firms for all their kleptocratic services needs. Uh, I know Paul just mentioned the Enablers Act. I'm not gonna pretend to remember what the acronym stands for, although I've heard it a few times. I'll get there <laughs> at some point, Paul, I promise. But the fact remains that all of a sudden, we have seen this unprecedented response. So certainly from a very narrow vantage point, yeah, you could argue it's pointless, but you have to not miss the forest for the trees. You have to take right. a far wider vantage. And I know Josh just talked about some of the responses as well. The momentum is absolutely there. And if, if you're watching this space, you can't help but be optimistic. Yeah, you know, the, I, your, the point is well taken, Casey, and I want to draw tease something out of here because you mentioned Putin's mistress in her condo, right? And this is the stuff that tends to grab the headlines, right? So we tend to focus on this, oh, this this exposure of this, you know, the venal corruption of the world's elites and, oh, Putin's mistress got a nice, you know, beachfront condo. Um, when And I would like to see more focus on the security threat. The fact that this isn't just Putin's mistress getting a condo. This is money being laundered through bricks and mortar. And, that, and in the laundering of that money through bricks and mortar, it creates this ready-made lobby, this network of influence that in the West. Everybody that is evolved downstream on these, on these corrupt deals is profiting from it, and they know where their bread's buttered, and this is creating – this is part of the security risk. Is, 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 it's, it's strategic corruption. It's not just – Putin stealing money for to buy his mistress a condo. It's 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 corruption used for strategic purposes. And I worry every time one of these things come 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 out. And actually, Casey, I'd like your reaction to this because you're you are a working journalist um, and, and one of the best people out there on this issue. Do do we run the risk of these just this kind of just turns into I don't know for lack of a better term financial porn. 
uh, instead of with it, you know, with the with 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 the, the security issues that are that, that there's not enough discussion of the actual security issues. Well, I was going to say, Brian, Brian, you're you're exactly right to hit that 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 uh, that point. I'll, I'll I'll try to work that term financial porn into future pieces myself <laughs> if I can. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. That's what gets the headlines. The, that's the kind of quote unquote sexy element of all this that gets the readers. And in a certain element, I'm perfectly fine with them putting that forward. It gets more audiences interested yeah. in this part of the world, why it's important, but certainly that's not the be all end all of, of what it is. Just on the national security element, just on the strategic corruption element, this is obviously a far broader conversation, maybe for another podcast in itself. But I, I don't think it's any surprise that some of those post-Soviet oligarchic figures that have perfected this kind of art of strategic corruption, of mm. looting and laundering billions of dollars, plowing it into Western investments, and then using those investments not only to immiserate and destabilize populations uh, back in the post-Soviet region and create all kinds of national security vacuums and issues, I'm thinking of places especially like Ukraine, but that they then come to, to the U.S. to do that. So I think as, as listeners may have seen um, and may be familiar with, there's a Ukrainian oligarch named Igor Kolomoisky who allegedly plowed hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars all across uh, the United States of America after looting and laundering uh, billions of dollars from Ukraine's largest retail uh, bank uh, and has now come forward as saying Ukraine needs closer relations with Russia. Oh, by the way, President Trump, I have dirt on uh, your rival, Joe Biden. You know, these kind of traditional strategic corruption elements. I don't think it's any surprise that it turns out that, as Paul mentioned, this Baker McKenzie law firm right here in the U.S., happen to be working directly with Mr. Kolomoisky himself. So you have these networks emerge. You have these elements of national security considerations, concerns emerge. It, it takes a little bit more to walk listeners through those steps, yeah. why it is that important. But if they can get there, we're all the better off for it. And yeah, maybe it takes a little bit of financial porn to get them there every once in a while. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I tend to think along those lines as well. I want to bring Paul and Josh in in a minute. I just wanted to mention another thing that grabbed my attention from these uh, the, these papers. And I think, Josh, you may have tweeted this. Um, I've been saying for years that, like, the, the cutouts that the Kremlin uses to basically to, to control Russia's neighbors – uh, should be the subject of sanctions. And one person I've long been focusing on is Bidzini Ivanishvili, who is uh, doesn't hold any government post in Georgia. He's the former prime minister. He is the he basically finances the ruling party. Um, and I can I I call Ivanishvili a Russian oligarch with a Georgian surname, basically, because that's effectively what he is. And his name popped up in these papers. And I always said, look, if we can get some kind of evidence that I've been telling Georgian journalists to find this for me, like uh, if we can get some kind of evidence that Ivanishvili broke U.S. law or broke EU law, then we could possibly think about sanctioning him. I don't know if what was revealed here rises to the level of that, but I was glad to see a little bit of sunlight shined on um, on Ivani Shilly. Uh, Josh or Paul, you look like you wanted to jump in. You look like you're about to eat your microphone. Yeah, uh, no, I just, I just, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's just such a fun topic because I think I, I just, um, in such an agreement with you that what we need to be focused on here is these Pandora papers aren't, you know, the, the, the really sexy cases and they're not, they're also not, because I see them, I constantly see them presented in this light. They're not like, oh, you know, eat the rich, you know, the wealthy are evading taxes and that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, really what's so fascinating about what we're seeing here is they tell the story of dictatorship versus democracy. They tell the story of modern geopolitics, and that is all of this illicit wealth coming from the East and going West. You know, it's it's Western enablers, it's Eastern money. 
that's accompanied by, you know, corrosive norms of corruption mm. and informality and telephone justice and so on and so forth. And now and that money comes to our system and undermines it. Right. Yeah. So 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 I mean, that's that's what we're seeing. And, that, and that's why, like, there's been a lot of questions around, for example, like, oh, why aren't any Americans in this? Why are so few Western Europeans in this? Well, this is that's that did not surprise me at all, because money come, goes from the east to the west. That's 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 how it works. They want to the the. The, the dictators, the kleptocrats, et cetera, they want to hide their stolen money in Western systems because modern dictatorship relies on access to the West. That's how yep. they continue the looting. That's how they maintain their systems is by ensuring that the little bit of rule of law they need, they get from outsourcing it to us. <laughs> right. Know? Well, no, Paul, I would say that not only how they maintain their systems, but how they corrode ours and make our systems more like their system. I mean, I, I don't know if any of you saw the great piece in Foreign Affairs by Fiona Hill uh, called The Kremlin's Strange Victory in America about how much the United States is beginning to resemble post-Soviet Russia. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time, and Fiona, Fiona beat me to the punch and wrote it better than I ever could have. Um, but this is one of the reasons why this is happening. Uh, it's the dark side of globalization. It doesn't just spread liberal ideas east. It spreads illiberal ideas West as well. So this is one of the things we're running into. Josh, you 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 want to jump in? Yeah, no, exactly right. And um, you know, another another really good Russia watchers recent piece, well, her book Putin's Putin's people, Catherine Belton talks yeah. about about this difference, this difference versus the Cold War. You know, with globalization, um, there there we have these connections, these yep. interconnections that did not exist. Then and 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 they've been weaponized against us in a unfortunately you know br brilliant way and you know to to prop up to prop up you know Kremlin allies you know in, in their own country and 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 abroad and their neighbors uh, Ivanishvili you mentioned had twelve companies in the in the Pandora Papers all registered in the in the British Virgin Islands we don't have the full picture there of like ultimately yeah. what went through there and where does it come from and you know what we all suspect about you know ultimately whether it's sor sources in moscow or you know yeah. functioning as a custodian um for ultimate right we know so very little about ivanishvili's wealth the, the sources of his wealth the suspicion is that it's russian money basically but 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 yeah the suspicion is but this is helpful i mean now you've got 12 names of companies um, yep. Out there, that journalists can pick up and continue with research, and you know, so and then all this Pandora Papers data will come out, and you know, usually it's it it takes some time for journalists to continue to look at it or build on. You know, it, maybe it wasn't one of the 600 journalists that's going to happen to know. Oh, I know that con who actually controls that you know particular right particular company, um, because this is how we fight back against against. A globalized offshore, whatever you call it, moneyland, kleptopia, kleptopia. We fight back by similarly connecting across borders through civil society by coordinating with journalists, each building up, learning from each other, building up our own resilience and our policies. But 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 working working together, um, you know, like the ICIJ and the OCCRP and others do through through leaks like this. So it's important, and we're fighting back, and we're having more success than it might look like. I mean, I, one other thing that it's come to mind as we have as we're having this discussion is I'm thinking what we're seeing now with this is kind of the logical conclusion of what has been several decades of, for lack of a better term, laissez-faire neoliberalism, right? And I, I throw that term out there; it's ideologically loaded, um, but, but but we all know what we're talking about here. Um, we have been since the '80s. 
right? Since the advent of Reagan and Thatcher, we have been in this environment, and this is not a political statement. This is an analytical statement. Um, we have been in this in this paradigm since the 80s. Regulation is bad. Free markets are good. Um, you know, we we you know gut your welfare state, deregulate take the handcuffs off a of business, let it go. And, you know, maybe there's an argument for that at different points, but I'm wondering now if we're getting to the point where we've deregulated the point where we are damaging our own national security and we've deregulated to the point where we're under, we're, we're facilitating the undermining of our, our own democracy with all this dark money that's being allowed to come in because this system is so hyper laissez faire. So in order to push, and I guess this is, I want all three of you on this, but I mean, Paul and, and, and Josh work in government, right? And you know how fraught this is. Um, Paul works in a bi, you know, <laughs> on a bipartisan bicameral commission. But I mean, are we pushing against a dominant paradigm and dominant conventional wisdom here? And if we are ever going to wrap our arms around this, do we have to push back against that 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 paradigm? And this is not a politic, a political statement. This is a this Can is I, a, I, an analytical statement. Go ahead, Paul. No, I, Brian, because I think I think you're I think you're touching on something that's extremely important to understand. And I and I talk about this a lot that I actually do think we're undergoing a paradigm shift. Um, and I and I think you see this on both on both sides of the aisle, on all sides of the aisle, for that matter. <laughs> you know, up, up, down, center, right, left, whatever. You know, <laughs> I I do think that we are recognizing that the last thirty. You know, we gave we gave it our bestest the last thirty years. We we tried the whole triumph of liberalism thing. We we you know end of history. End everything's of history. Gonna, everyone's going to be a democracy. Everything's great. And and I, and I always I always try to convey that that mentality was what it was. And we gave it a shot, and now and there's no shame in now recognizing right. that it's a different paradigm, and that it didn't work, and now we got to try something new. You well, know, so, I, would even, I would even argue that these things go cyclical, right? I mean, yeah. we yeah. go in these cycles of you know, you had a more redistributive, state-heavy you know paradigm from Roosevelt to Reagan, and now we've been in this laissez-faire. Paradigm. I mean, it's not just the U.S. These things tend to go across the Western world. And is is it is the paradigm naturally shifting back? Are things like the Pandora Papers just manifestations of the backlash against this? Casey, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, Brian, I was going to say one of the one of the really key points that you've made on one of the previous podcasts is uh, you know this kind of hypothetical case study, right? This this hypothetical parallel universe is what what if the Soviet Union had collapsed in the 1950s under another re Republican president, right. President Eisenhower? What different regulatory atmosphere? Certainly, what different aftermath? Would we have yeah. discovered and experienced after that? I mean, you know, we don't have to get into the broader discourse of, of, of deregulatory, you know, the deregulatory ethos we've seen since since the Reagan years. But we, we have gotten to the point now where we have deregulated to such an extent that we are under no, and I say we, the collective we on, on the American side, no compunction to check any of the sources of any of the funds going into real estate, going into private equity, going into hedge funds, going into art in auction houses going into uh, until right. 2021 shell companies going into trust going into you name it any number of these pillars of the western and especially american economy and we know what the fruits of that have been we right. know what has happened billions and billions and potentially more uh in, in terms of illicit wealth coming west coming to the u.s looking to be laundered looking to be anonymized and, and money with whatever they need it's money with a political agenda, though. It's exactly. Not just money. Exactly. It's not just politically neutral money. Um, Josh, you worked in Treasury. <laughs> you, you, you're familiar with all this. Are, are, do, do you, what do you have to say about this? Well, I mean, this isn't 
even just a treasury point, but just like a broader, you know, you 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 were you were mentioning Bitcoin kind of we go in cycles and we go back and forth. That's one of our strengths, mm-hmm. our our ability to lean into strategically whichever side of our economic model, liberal or conservative, is you know more clearly contrasting the 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 more rigid form of our authoritarian rivals while also suiting our our domestic political needs. And it, it even goes further back, you know. To the founding, when you know, yeah. as Americans, we we faced the mercantilist European empires, so we supported free trade, which you know right. came naturally to this nation born throwing tea into Boston Harbor. And then, like <laughs> World War II, you know, on, facing the more conservative societies of Germany and Japan, our our economy is able to sustain itself as the arsenal of democracy by leaning in the other right. direction with the more you know socially integrated and progressive home front. Think of like. Rosie, Rosie the Riveter. We talked about right. the Cold War, leaning in each direction. I mean, you've helped me see and think about that, Brian. How we it took the whole gamut of you know. Sometimes it's Keynesian yeah. investment. Sometimes it's supply side economics and low taxes. The problem is that we just went on autopilot after that yeah. with neoliberalism, well, and we missed these threats. Well, this is what worries me because, in case you you alluded to this, and this is stuff I've said in the past, is that the fact that the Soviet Union broke up when it did, in the midst of the par- the paradigm here in the West that it did, that became not just one of the different economic paradigms, it became scripture. It became scripture. Deregulation became almost sacred. And now to oppose it, you're, you, 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 you're treated like you're, so, you're, you're, you're outside the mainstream so far. And I'm, I'm wondering if that is the case or, and Josh, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that you think that we are in the midst of a paradigm shift because we're not going to get our arms around the security threat until this economic paradigm shifts, I think. Yeah, I, I was going to say, to quote a, a good friend of mine, Paul Massaro, who's here on the podcast with us today, <laughs> looking back over the last 30 years, I mean, Paul does have this great quote, and it's at the very front of my book. You know, we're, we're coming up on the end, on the 30th anniversary of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, coming up in, in, in just two months' time. And obviously, you know, Paul was running through end of history, you know, neo, neoliberalism, spreading wide, all kinds of transitioning democracies around the world. But certainly as it pertains to Russia, certainly as it pertains to some of the other regimes in the former Soviet space, and this is all a way of explaining Paul's quote, he says, the Cold War is over. The gangsters won. That impacts <laughs> so much into that ethos. And, you know, that, of course, there are any number of other, you know, we're talking about 15 different countries. It doesn't apply to every single one of them. But as we see in that 30 year period, they, these figures, these forces took full advantage of that deregulatory ethos right. and flipped it on its head, used and abused these systems for their own ends. And we're only just now beginning to learn of the national security threats, especially that well, come with that. And who are the gangsters? I mean, the gangsters, the division between the Russian state and the Russian gangsters is is so thin as to be non-existent. So if the gangsters, one, were in deep trouble because gangster number one, I, I got news for you, sits in the Kremlin. Paul, you, you've been quoted. You're smiling. you got something to say here. <laughs> No, no, I just, I just wanted to say that that I, I, I actually do think the paradigm is shifting, and I think there's a lot of hope, and I think, I think, I think that that's demonstrated by the caucus against foreign corruption and kleptocracy. It's demonstrated by the president coming out and saying countering corruption is a core U.S. national security interest. It's demonstrated by you know six pieces of counter kleptocracy legislation in this year's uh, you know National Defense Authorization Act. It's demonstrated by you know, banning anonymous shell companies last Congress. It's demonstrated by the Enablers Act introduction last week. I mean, I, I actually do think that members, Republicans and Democrats, the, the parties are transforming. They're doing what they naturally do. They're doing exactly how how Josh lays it out. And 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 perhaps we're a decade late, 
but but my you know yeah. one of my favorite quotes is of course that one attributed to Churchill that's you know you can always you can always trust the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> and, 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 and and at this and at this point it does feel like we've tried everything else. It's time to do the right thing. Well, this is a I, I, you'd almost think we scripted this, Paul, but you just you just that's the perfect segue to shift into our second uh, half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how the Biden administration has elevated fighting corruption as a major priority in its national security power policy. How does this policy look nine months into the administration? I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. is Josh Rudolph, the fellow for Malign Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also the author of the new must-read report, Regulating the Enablers. And joining us from Capitol Hill is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. And joining us from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist, author, and longtime Russian watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Article Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Article blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So in a June 3rd memorandum on establishing the fight against corruption as a core United States national security interest, President Biden wrote the following, quote, corruption corrodes public trust, hobbles effective governance, distorts markets and equitable access to services, undercuts development efforts, contributes to national fragility, extremism and migration, and provides authoritarian leaders a means to undermine democracies worldwide. When leaders steal from their nation's citizens or oligarchs flout the rule of law, economic growth slows, inequality widens, and trust in government plummets. Corruption threatens the United States national security, economic equity, global anti-poverty and development efforts, and democracy itself. But by effectively preventing and countering corruption and demonstrating the advantages of transparent and accountable governance, we can secure a critical advantage for the United States and other democracies. I think I could speak for all four of us as I was delighted when I read those words back in June um, to, to, to see the for the first time in my memory the president of the United States elevating this issue that we all care so deeply about uh, to the very top of the U.S. Uh, priorities. Josh, in a conversation off mic, uh, you and I were talking about this, and you said it seems like the Pandora Papers would be a good hook for the Biden administration to advance some of its priorities around corruption and kleptocracy, but we haven't really heard them saying or doing much about this in the past week. Um, what should they be doing? And how how could they be using this to do big things, perhaps, at the upcoming Summit of Democracies? Yeah, they, they have not yet. I mean, the the White House and the 
And the State Department had their d daily press briefings last week, and they were asked by reporters about the Pandora Papers, which was the biggest story in the world. Um, and you know, they 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 the spokespersons gave very general, uh, you know, brief, canned talking points about we support financial transparency, we support anti-corruption, we support Jordan. Um, but aside aside from that, it's been nothing. Not a single word from Treasury. By contrast. After the the Panama Papers in 2016, it only took three days for Treasury to announce that it was finalizing a big banking rule on beneficial ownership called the Customer Due Diligence Rule. Um, and, and just a, a couple of weeks, three or four weeks after that, Treasury sent suggested legislation, as I mentioned earlier. And at the same time, the team that I worked on, at the way we, we organized a big anti-corruption day where Obama pounded the table on you know, needing Congress to act and introduced a whole bunch of other transparency rules uh, from the IRS and whatnot. And, uh, you know, as we talked about, this time Congress has already uh, gotten the ball rolling. Uh, but Treasury, I mean, this week Treasury was a big week of Treasury engagements at the IMF, World Bank, G20, G7. But they put out you know, their press guidance and their readouts saying that Yellen's top international priorities continue to be taxes, climate, health, and helping poor countries. It's like, it's like they haven't seen the Pandora Papers, or they haven't seen Biden's anti-corruption memo that you just that you just read. So what that tells me is that at the Summit for Democracy in eight weeks, the risk is that Treasury would would do what they did at the UN session on corruption back in in June, which is to limit their presentation to either what they're already good at, like sanctions or existing geographic targeting orders, or implementation of things that are statutorily required by the latest NDAA, like beneficial ownership. So that, if they do that, that would be ruinous for Biden's corruption and kleptocracy agenda. Instead, what I recommend in great detail in my report is that Treasury should launch a major campaign in December to impose anti-money laundering rules on professional enablers and make it concrete and credible with specific, you know, low-hanging fruit, the investment advisors, the title insurers, the art dealers. And I would probably add to that also come out in support of the Enablers Act, because that's going to have to be the other next big priority, especially given the risk of divided government after the midterms. You know, getting the Enablers Act passed would empower the administration uh, with all the congressional support that it needs to then spend the last two years of the administration, uh, you know, regulating what I call the four horsemen of dirty money, the lawyers, trust administrators, accountants, and PR. So there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, no, I, just, I mean, you work in the executive branch. What do you attribute this this inaction that we, we're seeing right now on this? Because this is something the president clearly cares about. He's elevated it as, as a top priority. Uh, everybody should have seen that memo. Hell, if I saw it, I hope people in government saw it. <laughs> um, so what, what do you attribute? Is this a bandwidth problem? Is this that there's just I mean, this administration is dealing with a lot at the moment, they're, 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 you know, in their defense. Uh, what, what, what do you see as somebody that worked in the executive branch? They are dealing with a lot. I mean, of course, for them, number one is pandemic. Every morning, you know, the, I'm sure the president wakes up and goes to bed thinking about COVID, right, uh, and what to do next. So, like, that's understandable. Of course, there's also a lot going on in the in the world, and they're down on they're, like bandwidth. Like, they they haven't gotten most of their of their confirmations, you know, from right. from the Senate. So, like, that's that's real and that's substantial. And and the personnel that they do have, in some cases matters a lot. I mean, S S Secretary Yellen is 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 one of the, the smartest economists of her generation and like a brilliant labor economist, which was 
a, a master stroke putting her in place at the time when, you know, we got to move from lockdown and get the labor market going and stuff. It's just it, she has kind of a focus and an expertise elsewhere that, you know, I, I think a lot of people would probably agree is even more important. It's the single most important you know issue our country is facing. It's just she does not have a national security or dirty money corruption and kleptocracy background mm. at all. So so it's not on her her radar. Yeah, no, and it's like securitizing these issues is is difficult because people are accustomed to being in their lane on this, and it's not traditionally been something that's been in the national security lane until until recently. Um, I'm going to bring Casey in here um, because a lot of this is that the magic word today seems to be enablers. We, we're talking a lot about enablers. Um, Casey, in your book, you discuss what you call the enabler professions in the U.S., um, yeah. those professions that enable autocrats and kleptocrats like Putin to basically engage in strategic corruption. Yeah. Um, explain this to a for, for our listeners, because I think this is a good way to kind of do a deeper dive into the Enablers Act, which is um, which is working its way through Congress. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Brian. You know, when, when we're talking, this is what we were talking about in the first half of this this podcast too. These specific Western, and in this case, American professions, industries, professional bodies that act as the effective gatekeepers for the uh, American economy, for American services, for American. As again, I describe them pro kleptocracy tools that allow these kleptocratic oligarchic, despotic figures to move, to hide, to stash, to launder, and then to enjoy however they want uh, the fruits of their ill-gotten gain. I, 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 you know, I can run through the list of them, right? We're talking about lawyers. We're talking about real estate professionals. We're talking about private equity and hedge fund managers. We're talking about art and auction house managers. We're talking about accountants. We're talking about luxury goods providers. It goes on and on and on. Any of those who are selling either on one hand, significant ticket items, that is to say, uh, uh, high expense items, private jets, private yachts, mega mansions in California or Los Angeles, or even in some cases, things like commercial real estate, office buildings across the American uh, Midwest, factory plants, steel plants, again, as we've seen in, in recent years, or those who are controlling the actual financial secrecy vehicles themselves, the trust providers, those overseeing the creation of, of shell companies. You know, and the list goes on and on, and, and there's no surprise why, because there hasn't been any kind of regulatory oversight outside of the banking sector in the U.S. for mm -hmm. them to have to go to in order to have to check where does this money come from? Is this the source of any kind of kleptocratic figure? Is this person simply a cutout for President Putin's right. money? I, I will say, just on the policy side, I can't recommend enough Josh's recent report regulating the enablers. Just implement that as the playbook. Frankly, it goes into far more detail than anything that I can I can use to describe. But uh, again, it takes two to tango. Kleptocracy is a transnational system of illicit finance. It's not relegated or, or confined to one regime, one country. It requires the acquiescence and the active participation of all of these enabling industries here in the U.S. and across the West that we have let run absolutely wild and profit to their heart's content for far, far, far too long. And we've now seen the results of all of that. Well, let's go uh, enablers part two. Uh, Josh, let's let's talk about this report. Um, what are what are for our listeners benefit? Uh, what, what are what are what are your recommendations to regulate these enablers? Well, I mean, first of all, I'll say that uh, th thanks, Casey, for that. The, the, the report, you know, goes into the policy details of exactly how and what Treasury should do. It also it goes through the the cases across each of these um, professions, and some of them, you know, I selected the cases that we have the most reported details around, not just kind of you know a story or two about 
about you know cr weaponized corruption, but really you know reporting on on who played what role and and how did the money move and who handled one, who's responsible from which, including from which you know American professionals to another. And some of those cases are from Casey's uh, new book, American Kleptocracy, which everyone also has to pre-order. I, I, I cite it 56 times in my very long <laughs> policy report, but but that's like Thanks, the policy implications, not the like exclusive reporting, the vivid narrative context, the graphic storytelling. So you don't want to miss that. But in terms of the the, um, the 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 policy recommendations, basically it lays out for Treasury how they should order, how they should prioritize based on 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 political and, and and budgetary and statutory constraints. What are the low hanging fruit? Where do you so because we all talk about and have for some time, we kind of throw out all of these enablers, the lawyers, the accountants, the hedge fund managers, whatever. But like until now, nobody's kind of really done the the analysis of, you know, given the constraints that Treasury has, where should they start? Where do they need Congress with the Enablers Act? Mm. If they if they do get Enablers Act, then what do they do with the Four Horsemen? If they don't get it, if we, you know, that is not passed, then they have to lower their ambitions and focus on repealing regulatory exemptions. So it's a, it's a regulatory uh, uh, plan of attack. All right, let's, now, now this this is Paul. You got the most awesome setup in the world here because we got basically both both of these guys setting you up to talk about the enablers. Act. Hey, um, you set them up by knocking them down. All right, knock us down. What, us, Paul. what would the what, what would the enablers act be able to do? What, what would what would our regulators be able to do? What would Treasury be able to do with the enablers act that it's not able to do now? Right. So I mean, the the biggest thing that the enablers act possible is to build basic due diligence obligations for these particular markets. The law firms, art dealers, um, investment advisors, uh, uh, tr trust and company formation agents, there, there are a few others. And I mean, I, I guess like many things in this field, Brian, you know, I always kind of say we, we left the barn door open over the last 30 years. Yeah. You know, we let, we sort of, we sort of let all the dirty money just come on in, you know? Um, and, and we know it was kind of from that, of course, mentality of, you know, well, you know, any any money is good money. Right. <laughs> you know? So, uh, and, and I think that now that that's finally changing, you know, we could just, I mean, there's nothing in here in the Enablers Act that's like revolutionary or crazy. It literally gets us into compliance with FATF Recommendation 22. So, so, so the, the Financial Action Task Force, of course, is uh, kind of the global regulatory body uh, put together like at the initiative of the United States, really, uh, as part of our war on drugs and then kind of enhanced uh, as part of our war on terror, you know, and, 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 you know, they have all these, they have these 40 recommendations on, uh, on how to fight illicit finance. And they do these mutual peer evaluations. And for the longest time, the United States has gotten knocked very hard by its peers uh, on anonymous companies, which we abolished last Congress. And then this other one, uh, recommendation 22 that we don't have any due diligence obligations, whatever, none, for uh, right. for for our professionals. And I and I guess it's kind of an extraordinary thing when I, when I talk with anybody, no matter what their political perspectives, and I tell them that a lawyer has to do no due diligence, whatever, none at all on their clients. People are like, R really? Like 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 I think that I think that there's like an like an American mentality. It's like, well, of course they have to do something. Of course they couldn't just accept dirty money. You know, but no, they can just accept dirty money. They there are no legal guidelines at all, no ramifications, no fines, no nothing. 
you know, for anyone that's accepting dirty money in any of the professions. The only people that have to do any due diligence in the United States are the banks. Right. Exactly. And and that's why that's why the American banking system is actually relatively clean. The Pandora Papers are about these non-bank in That's right. When you hear about massive money laundering scandals, it's European banks. It's not you mm -hmm. because we have good rules on our banks. Right. We the last them. big one was Bank of New York in 99, but yeah, that's the last one I can remember. Yeah, exactly. Some some time ago and then came 9/11 and then we could we we really strengthened the system and the financial crisis and had big multi-billion dollar, you know, fines and that really motivates compliance. And so we have this apparatus all set up with the banking system where they have to establish anti-money laundering programs when, and that basically means you need to have a compliance officer, trainings, audits, and controls, and then you have to identify your customers, look at the transactions, make sure they make sense, keep records, and let the government know if there's if there's any suspicious activity. And so all the Enablers Act would do is require these non-bank professionals to do the same thing that banks are already doing and, and, and are already required in 90% of other countries. Casey, you want to jump in? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, just to, to, to Paul's point regarding lawyers and the lack of due diligence, we're not talking just about legal representation in court. Certainly, everybody is entitled to their day in court. But what we've seen over the last few decades, especially regarding American lawyers working in places like Russia, places like the, you know, the broader post-Soviet region, now they are acting not just as legal representation. They are the PR teams. They are the ones managing the shell company accounts or the trust accounts. They are the ones connecting with the realtors or the art and auction house managers or the luxury goods dealers. They have become one-stop shops so much of it cloaked with the addition, additional anonymity of attorney-client privilege. And I, and I will say just on that point, if, if folks want an incredibly intimate look in how these American law firms have transformed into the go-to vehicles for these figures, uh, two years ago, the Department of Justice uh, had a series of filings, overdue filings from the American law firm of Skadden Arps that was working on behalf of uh, none other than our old friend Viktor Yanukovych and his uh -huh. regime in Ukraine doing everything under the sun for him, specifically crafting a report to help Yanukovych entrench his regime in Kyiv. We saw what that happened. We saw what happened after that. And we saw the fallout from that. In many ways, we're still dealing with the fallout from that. Yeah. So far more detail on the DOJ website about Skadden's work for Yanukovych and so much more. No, I mean, I'll never forget back when my days at RFE, I had written a blog post about Gennady Timchenko, who's a famous Putin crony. Um, and I... Like you know, as fast as fast as can be, I got a a quick phone call from the the PR slash law firm that was representing him. Um, so these 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 they not only are the PR firms, they're they're basically being used to intimidate journalists. Um, in that's in right. Doing it's, the, it's the whole gamut of 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 the kleptocrat services industry. They'll they'll right. la they'll launder your money. They'll intimidate your opponents. They'll do your PR work. They'll lobby for you. You know, and all in the same place. I mean, that's. That's kind of the big expose on Baker McKenzie that was part of the Pandora Papers. You know, I, again, I, I think it's a great point, Casey, because I think that people, your, your average American, when they think of like, okay, you're getting, a, you're getting a lawyer. Well, you're getting a lawyer because somebody's suing you or, 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 or there are court proceedings. No, no. <laughs> like, 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 what did Baker McKenzie do? They set up a bunch of strings of offshore companies to help with money laundering, right? Like that, that's, that's what they, it wasn't, they weren't, there were no active court proceedings or anything like that. You know, this wasn't about representing their clients before the government or, or, or whatever it was going to be, you know, um, this was, this was part of this, this string, this, this, this selection of kleptocratic services that are offered by these, you know, specialty services offered by these firms. Right. You know, and, and this is, go ahead. Go ahead well, Josh. I was going to say like, 
the, the, the good thing about the Enablers Act is it it, it really carefully scopes the language. It, it takes a, a measured approach that's consistent with international standards, whereby these these activities that we're talking about, especially when you touch your client's money, that has to be subject to you know anti-money laundering controls. Right. Basically, the Enablers Act would say you know lawyers can can be allowed to to handle their clients' money, or they can be allowed to avoid having to look for dirty money, but not both. Not right. both. Uh huh. No, I mean, and this. I mean, what I the thought experiment I always do on this is like, could you imagine if in the you know the middle of the Cold War you had like American law firms basically handling the money of like you know Brezhnev and his cronies? You know. <laughs> I know. You know I, mean, I know. It would be a ridiculous idea. And then running PR for Brezhnev. And then and running PR. Right, right, yeah, exactly, Brezhnev's exactly. not such a bad guy. Come on. <laughs> you know. They wanted the tanks there. You know. But <laughs> we've been living. But we've been living with this fiction since the fall of the Soviet Union that we're dealing with a different entity now. And the fact of the matter is we're not. We're not. It's just a different, you know, it's different window dressing on the same oligarchic regime effectively. And that's, uh, that's, that, that's, go ahead, Casey. I was going to say, Brian, we, we're again, 30 years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union coming up here in a few months. I mean, I think it's pretty clear we can drive a stake into any notion that these are any kind of transitioning democracies. Yeah. We know exactly what they are. And yet but we still... operate as if they were. We continue to operate as if they were. And that's what that's what bothers me. And if you if you suggest otherwise, I don't know, you're a McCarthyite or something. And I just it's, it's um, this is a problem because we're basically allowing an adversarial nation to basically undermine our our system yes. with, 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 with with and Brian, with, with, I think I think you're right on the money, and I, and I've said before, you know, I've asked, I've been asked, you know, like what when when will we know we've won? When will we when will we get to the point where 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 we need to be? And it, and it'll be when no American firm or professional or whatever would even think to accept money from a dictatorship. It just wouldn't it just wouldn't cross their mind because because to do so would be so out of line, out of the norms. Right. And they know that their peers would would avoid them and think think less of them and so on and so forth, but we're but we're not at that point yet. But see, that's that's what's so helpful about Pandora Papers. That's what's so helpful about you know continuing to move this forward because we're getting there both legally, but we're also getting there normatively. Yeah, it's no, becoming, I was going to say yeah, this is a normative more cultural more battle as much as it is a a, a legal battle. Um, we're bumping up against the end. I want to give you each an opportunity to just kind of say your, your your last thoughts on all of this. Uh, Paul, why don't you start if, unless you don't want to? Sure. No, I'd love to. No, I mean, as always, I am the perpetual optimist. I, I think I think we've recognized the problem. Every time on this podcast, I feel that way. I, I feel that way when I'm hanging out with Casey and Josh and, and, and others in our field, you know, I mean, and you, Brian. I, I mean, I, I think we've recognized the problem. We're moving toward the solutions. I do think this is an existential threat, but I think we're going to defeat it. Casey? Uh, yeah, just to, to pick up Paul's point, you know, it's so funny working in this space, following all the news regarding so many of these networks, some of these developments. I mean, it's so easy to get bogged down in just how massive the issue is uh, and just how much remains to be done. But at the end of the day, there is absolutely wide space for optimism. We're talking about things like the Enablers Act. We're talking about increasing investigations and details of how these networks operate. But I think most importantly, somebody else phrased this. I can't remember who. You know, we created in so many ways, this world of offshored wealth. We created yeah. these systems, which means that we can also decreate these. We can deconstruct these. We know what needs to be done. We just need the political will to get there. And, yeah. and I will tell you, we are getting there. Josh, yeah, last no, word I, to you. I, I agree. You know, it, it can feel really 
downbeat seeing all of this news out of the you know Pandora papers and and talking about these law firms who are run by like folks whose like unreconstructed worldviews were formed after 89 they don't have they don't know really who they're representing because mm-hmm. they don't they're not familiar with the idea of of authoritarians they don't realize they're being abused for PR whitewashing not for legal advice but we are going to show them through policy i mean that's what it's you are seeing a sea change it's not maybe happening in the biggest law firm in america but it's happening with journalism not just pandora papers i'm you know we're talking about 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 casey's work we, in the policy space you know i'm bringing the 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 recommendations and you know in congress as as as, as paul has been leading so appreciate you bringing this this conversation together because i do think that um that this is, you know, the the, the present and and the future. Yeah, Mel, and I, I appreciate you all coming on to talk about these important issues. And that's uh, we're bumping up against the end here. So unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I could probably go on forever, but then my producers would probably put a contract out on me, so we wouldn't want to do that. Um, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from his historic Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. has been Josh Rudolph, the fellow for Malign Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also the author of the recent must-read report, Regulating the Enablers. And also joining us from historic Capitol Hill has been Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States. States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent bipartisan and bicameral commission of the United States Congress, where some of the most interesting and important legislation is currently being drafted. And also joining us from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, has been journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy. Thank you all for an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Thank Brian. you, Brian. Thank you. I'd also, also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up all of my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 